G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. Welcome back for another week. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you, Rowan, and this really is one of my very favourite topics. Well, it is a fascinating topic, isn't it? We've just had a little bit of a chat about it then, and I'm very much looking forward to getting into it with you today. And we've called today's episode, The Mystery of the Mind, Beyond Conventional Healing. So, Dad, do you want to just give us a bit of a brief rundown? What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, last time we talked about placebo effects and about the connection between the mind and body and how our belief about how things might go or how things might unfold for our well-being can make a difference. Well, this is taking things a little bit further because many people believe that there's something of a mystical dimension to life or a soul dimension to life, if you like. Not just mind-body, but mind-body and soul. And we're going to talk about some things that really are quite mysterious that do relate to healing unconventional kind of healing that's been documented in different ways that can make us think that there's something really quite uncanny or remarkable that's going on that it almost seems to have a bit of magic to it and so it's trying to understand more about the mystery of the mind in terms of what we might call a paranormal or mystical kind of dimension. Well, it's interesting hearing you talk about mysticism in terms of healing because it's not something that we often hear linked in exactly that way. So maybe you could help us with a bit of why we're talking about this today. Well, I think that there's something that's missed if we try and understand things too rationally all the time. And I think one of the things that might be missed is some of the reasons why every culture of the world used to have its shamans. So shamans being traditional healers. And the traditional healers had lots of stories or ways of doing things and rituals that we could think seem quite superstitious these days. But these days we could understand how things like their dance and strange expressions and the kind of ceremonies or rites that they would perform when they're going through healing rituals, we can understand that those practices draw on placebo effects. That's something we talked about last time. But maybe there is something about the nature of reality that is beyond what can be rationally explained. And some of the traditional healing methods or some of the healing practices that people might have engaged in or reported on these days that might relate in some ways to telepathy, even psychokinesis, how our mind can influence physical matter, even at a distance... These are unconventional concepts, but maybe there's some reality in these concepts. And if our mind and matter can interact, including at a distance, like if there can be a non-local influence over mind, over matter, in terms of telepathy, psychokinesis, then maybe that suggests that even beyond placebo and just straight belief, there are some kind of forces or influences at work that we can draw on healing and so ultimately we're exploring whether there are other ways even if they're unconventional ways of thinking about it but they go back to traditional ideas of the shamans if you like whether there are other ways broader more holistic ways that have maybe a spiritual dimension to them as well that we can bring into healing Well, it's one thing that I find fascinating when you look at some of the people who are the most prominent over the history in science 
And so many of them had some of these beliefs around mysticism and and even paranormal stuff, people like Jung and Freud and even Isaac Newton and people like that. It's also interesting to note that the root word for alchemy is the same as the root word for chemistry. So without some of that, I suppose, mystical thought in terms of alchemy trying to turn materials into gold, maybe we wouldn't have got to the foundations of of what we know chemistry to be today. So it's one thing that I find very interesting is how this... I suppose you'd almost call it a reductionist dogma has infiltrated into academia and particularly scientific academia, even though when you look at some of the history of of this thought, uh, where it came from, the people involved, they also engaged in some of the what we refer to as supra-rational thinking at times as well. It wasn't just purely rational. Yes, and when you mention Isaac Newton, one of the things I find most fascinating is he wrote more about alchemy looking to turn base metals into gold, then he wrote about gravity. Actually, one regret he had virtually on his deathbed was that he didn't spend even more time studying alchemy. He was absolutely hooked on it, so to speak. So this wouldn't have just been the literal idea of trying to create gold. There would have been something symbolic, I believe, in it for Isaac Newton. But also Descartes, who's associated with the separation of the mind and body through his writings. And so people sometimes look at Descartes' kind of logic as encouraging us to be rational. But one of Descartes' early proofs was that God exists. So there's Isaac Newton, believes in this, what we think is a crazy idea of alchemy. Then there's Descartes, who believes in God. But somehow their ways of teaching us how to think has led to us being ultra-rational in our education systems and ignoring some of the very creative, meaningful and, dare I say, effective ideas. In some ways, it's led to real change and profound discoveries of people like William James and Carl Jung that we'll talk about shortly in terms of healing. Well, it is fascinating hearing you talk about that because I suppose the main thing that comes to mind when talking about Descartes is his aphorism, I think, therefore I am. And when you're talking about some of this sort of stuff, obviously you can take that in a literal sense. Of it relates to intelligence and consciousness. But when we're talking about some of this placebo sort of stuff, to me it hints at the link between our thoughts and the way that we experience reality. So even just yeah, hearing Descartes mentioned in terms of all of this sort of stuff leads me to think that even he was suggesting a little bit more than just a literal interpretation of, of I think, therefore I am. Ah, I like that way of looking at it, Rowan, and I can see how that ties in with placebo effects. And when we talk a bit later on about some of the principles of quantum physics, just very briefly, I think that follows on from what you're suggesting there. And so, Dad, why is it not worth dismissing some of these ideas? Because there are going to be people out there who do have a a more rational viewpoint who probably will dismiss some of these ideas. But I wonder, particularly for our purposes... What are some of the reasons that you think that it's worth looking into? Okay, well, one of the main things I think is that these ideas can work. And we start off with the notion of placebo effects that we talked about last time. The notion of our belief can change the outcome of a circumstance. For example, if we believe that we're likely to recover from depression or an addiction or something like that, it's actually going to help us recover in certain ways. Whereas if we are focused on the feeling of being helpless or doomed 
then that's going to interfere with our recovery. So that, that's one level at which it influences things. But there have been people who took it a bit further, these ideas like Carl Jung when he looked at the collective unconscious. And so Carl Jung would not just help people draw on dream experiences and images in people's minds, but also synchronicity, which is something of a mystical phenomenon, if you like, the notion that some coincidences that happen are so meaningful, it seems to go beyond chance. Well, certainly it's meaningful and we can draw on those experiences to help, even in healing. And Jung would have had a number of examples of that. But then there was William James, who was a very scientifically-minded psychologist. He was actually the first psychologist to develop a laboratory, I believe, in 1879. So this is very early on his scientific approach. But William James also believed in mystical experience. He actually used to experiment with nitrous oxide, a psychedelic. Interestingly, psychedelics are starting to become a little bit more popular in the idea of research in the last year or two. But he was exploring different ways of, I suppose, appreciating an aspect of reality or, or life through exploring psychedelics. And he believed that there was a mystical dimension that he defined with four characteristics. It's ineffable. So it's hard to describe what we mean by mysticism or even paranormal experience in words. It's hard to explain this. It's noetic. So there's this sense of gaining knowledge in some ways that you can't just gain from the intellect. There's something more deeply intuitive going on. It's also transient, so mystical phenomena just don't last indefinitely, and it's passive, meaning there's a feeling of something coming from the outside. So in terms of healing... And this kind of holistic healing open to a soul dimension or a mystical dimension, it's as though people are opening themselves up to some kind of force or consciousness beyond oneself, which also, as we'll talk about later, can include other people's thoughts encouraging healing. There are notions that even at a distance, people can impact on other people's healing through contemplating their recovery. We'll come to that a bit later. So there's evidence that these things can work. Well, it is absolutely. I'm very interested to get into that with you because it's not something that I must admit, you know, intuitively makes sense. So I'm very looking forward to getting into that with you. But I suppose what comes to mind for me there is hearing you talk about that is just the degree to which some of these ways of thinking are present in other philosophies outside of the Western philosophy. And one thing that comes to mind for me is, for example, you hear of the yogis in India. And, for example, you might get a yogi who, for example, will for 40 days and nights stand on top of a pole on one leg with one arm in the air, fasting for the whole time. And somehow they're able to stay alive, they're able to continue throughout that whole time. And so it seems to suggest that there's clearly some capacity that we haven't rationalised in the West. The fact that they can you know, do that, it's, it's pretty black and white in an empirical level that something there exists. But it seems that we haven't quite put the finger on it in the West, exactly what that is. And one thing that I find really interesting is looking at, for example, Wim Hof is someone who has gained prominence recently through his breathing techniques. I believe he's a, a Scandinavian guy. And, and through his breathing techniques, he's, for example, able to trek Everest without oxygen 
He's able to sit in freezing cold streams and bear the water temperature the way it is. And without necessarily suggesting that, you know, there's something mystical to Wim Hof because, you know, by all accounts, you're able to learn these techniques yourself. But at the same time, the fact that Wim Hof's technique comes in and, you know, ostensibly makes no rational sense, yet it still works. It just seems to suggest to me that there maybe is a slight blind spot in the western way of thinking the rational way of thinking if it doesn't allow for something that we can see in front of our eyes that this exists that this guy can go up to the top of everest and teach other people how to do it without oxygen yet at the same time just because we can't rationalize it some people you know dismiss it as if it's not true at all Yes, so there's something extraordinary about that capacity and that experience isn't there and it's clearly something related to health whether someone can function at a certain level without the level of oxygen that you would expect them to need. And so it's worth being a little bit curious about things like this. And actually, now I'll mention a couple of examples of people who've demonstrated reasons for us to be curious about this. And one is Milton Erickson, who's probably one of the most influential psychotherapists of all time. He died in 1980. He did a lot of remarkably creative work with hypnosis. And he's inspired some of the leaders of the generation or two after him. But Milton Erickson famously suffered from polio around 17 years of age. It was so severe at first he could barely use his arms, he couldn't walk, he couldn't speak properly. But he had this experience that he described early on like a blinding flash of light. I only heard about this recently that he had this kind of, well, very remarkable kind of experience. But then he used a remarkable technique to help him manage with polio. First of all, because his muscles were so depleted, what he did is he drew on muscle memories, body memories, of the muscular activity in his body. And this helped him tweak his use of muscles and develop his muscles to the point that he could use his arms and talk. Then apparently being able to use his arms, he still couldn't walk properly, he went on this enormously lengthy canoe trip on his own I think it was about a thousand miles and after that he was able to walk with the help of a cane so there's this remarkable visualization that he did and he managed through a career of being a hypnotherapist and a psychotherapist managing with the pain at times having to sit up in bed with all sorts of discomfort but apparently his musculature changed its structure as shown on x-rays and and that with him using his mind in a certain way. And another more recent example is Joe Dispenza, who does different kinds of workshops on holistic healing. And Joe Dispenza had this experience where he was on a bike and he was struck by a car. And he was about to be run over by the car in dire straits and his vertebrae, was smashed at different levels and he was told that he was just going to have to have surgery to fix this. Then he thought he's going to get a second opinion. He had another opinion again, surgery, and then another opinion, surgery, but he thought, wait a minute, I'm going to go about this in a different way. And a little bit reminiscent of Ericsson using visualisation, he had to lie flat. I think this would have been for a couple of months he was staying at a friend's house and he visualised his vertebrae coming back in alignment. And even though he was always meant to be suffering from this condition, 
I saw him just a number of years ago up on the stage for a full day. He runs five-day workshops. He went through this remarkable healing without surgery in that particular case. And he partly attributed it to this kind of visualisation process that he went through. Also, believing that they're different kind of influences, if you like, on our mind-body that you just can't easily explain in rational ways. So there are two quite practical and remarkable examples, but there are many, many examples that other people have like that as well. Well, there's some absolutely fascinating examples, and I must admit those stories and examples are some of the things that really do interest me most about this subject, because some of them are absolutely fascinating. And, and one that really comes to mind for me is a little bit more of a contemporary example, but I remember reading Glenn McGrath, the Australian Fast Bowler's autobiography, and he tells the story in the 2005 Ashes series, so one of the most famous cricket series of all time, Glenn McGrath actually stepped on a ball just before the first test and sprained his ankle. It looked like he was going to miss a lot of cricket at that time. And basically, through his rehabilitation process, he visualised every night before he was going to bed little men that existed in his head, like little construction workers. And every night before he'd go to bed, the last thing he'd do is he'd visualise these little men working their way down his body to his ankle, to his injured ankle, and he would visualise them repairing his injured ankle. And just before he'd go off to bed, he'd say, righty, I'll, I'll leave you guys for the night. And when I wake up, you know, you will have repaired my ankle a bit more. Well, he ended up getting back to fast bowling. So, you know, I think it's about six times your body weight goes through your ankle being a fast bowler. He was doing that in less than two weeks later. So who knows without that visualisation technique, how long he would have been able to recover. But all the doctors at the time were saying, mate, this is absolutely unbelievable, just how quick you are able to to recover in this way. Yes, and that visualisation technique, a remarkable practical example, and it also shows a very sensible person known to achieve in a very conventional way, but by being open to that different way of thinking, at very least we know that's going to draw on placebo effects that work but is there something else again that might help with that? Are there some, would it be almost like spooky healing forces that when we actually consider something in a certain way, it puts certain energy or whatever into action? That also reminds me of many people who've suffered from cancer might have had some kind of visualisation of, for example, a, a wheelbarrow going along and a tiny little spade digging at the cancer and then filling up the wheelbarrow and then taking it away and discarding it. So there are different kinds of visualisations that people can draw on to assist their health in a certain way. And, and why ignore that if it's not really costing us anything and it's contemplating the positive, it's contemplating recovery? Well, as you say, it's so interesting talking about this now because it seems to me as we talk about this that it's a little bit self-evident that there is something there. And you hear about people all the time who, for example, live longer than modern science suggests that they will. Like, for example, a doctor says you've got this long to live. Well, the doctor's not just pulling that number out of thin air and giving it to them. They're going to be obviously as optimistic as possible when you're talking about the length someone has to live. But at the same time, that's what kind of modern science and that's what rational thought would suggest someone you know may live for but quite often they live longer and there's a fascinating example that I came across the other day of actually a TED talk and I'll put it up on the podcast page for today which you can access at psychspills.com.au and it's from Janine Shepherd. her name is and similar to actually what you were saying dad about Joe Dispenza 
But she was someone who was hit by, I believe, a truck when she was on a training ride. She was an Olympic skier heading to the Olympics, hit by a truck on a training ride and was told that she'd never walk again. Well, she's delivered this TED Talk and now she basically goes around and and helps coach people as what's called a walking paraplegic. And you just think inherently in the term walking paraplegic, there's something quite unscientific about that. If someone's being declared paraplegic, it's likely that their spinal cord has been severed at a point or at least it's damaged to the point where it won't work again. So how is someone able to walk without the mechanism of being able to walk in the conventional way that we'd think of it? So clearly she's been able to access some other way to be able to heal herself in order to be able to walk. And uh, yeah, so Janine Shepard is her name and I will put up her TED Talk because it's absolutely fascinating for a practical example as we're talking about. And isn't it good that she just didn't accept some conventional explanation of paraplegia and decide that she was never going to walk again? Because if she decided or believed that she'd never walk again, it's hard to imagine how she would have achieved what you described. And so part of what we're talking about is watching out for negative self-limiting beliefs. And the background we've described in the past with this too is we have to watch out for some of the models or explanations we have in mental health care. Because as we've talked about it in the past, if people are going to look at depression, for example, as something which has a genetic cause, it's to do with a biochemical imbalance, and you need medication to address it maybe for the rest of your life, that is such a limited, pessimistic model. Part of what we're looking for, to encourage people to do is to be open to more optimistic models of looking at things because if we see ourselves, our mind and bodies as having a natural way potentially of healing, of bringing back some homeostasis and we're open to, if you like, holistic forces or influences that can help that come about, hey, then I think we're stacking the odds in our favour. Well, one thing that strikes me about all this, Dad, is that Although some of this may not fit in with exactly the conventional scientific thought, one of the things that strikes me is just how much we are discovering about science all the time. And one of the fields that we have made so many more discoveries in recent history is the field of quantum physics. And it's very interesting to me that that you actually pointed this out, that a number of the leaders in the field of quantum physics actually make a link with healing, between quantum physics and healing. So I wonder if you could just touch on that a little bit for us now. Okay, and I mentioned with this too, at the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, which is held in America every, usually about every four years, and you get a number of world leaders in psychotherapy, about a third of whom have trained with Milton Erickson. And a number of them refer to quantum physics in their work. So Ernest Rossi, sadly departed in the last year but an absolute hero of mine he certainly looked at using hypnosis and looked at how it could switch on 200 genes that relate to different aspects of healing depression schizophrenia immune system parkinson's all sorts of different conditions are influenced by genes and the issue of whether these genes are switched on or switched off whether they're expressed will make a difference in terms of whether people develop a certain kind of condition or not and certainly Ernest Rossi talked about quantum physics a number of others as well who had this influence from Milton Erickson Daniel Siegel is another one There's also Robert Diltz and Stephen Gilligan from the NLP field. So what they're often referring to is something that Amit 
Goswami talks about when he talks about the connection between mind and body in terms of quantum physics and healing. So Amit Goswami, for example, in a book called The Quantum Doctor, he talks about a principle in quantum physics called superposition. And superposition is where there could be a particle or an electron that could be in a number of different positions in space. It could be here or a little over there or next to it there or it could be in many different locations with different levels of probability. But once we perceive an electron or a particle as being in one particular position, that's where it is. So in other words, if we perceive something as being there, that's where it is. Now what Amit Goswami says is that principle also applies to mind-body reactions with our emotions. If we perceive an ambiguous situation as inducing anger or anxiety or sadness or some other kind of distress or upset or relief or how we perceive a situation will be how we respond to the situation. It's as though that particular situation would only lead us to feel happy, sad, depressed, anxious, fearful or whatever. Once we foreclose on our perception of a situation, we decide, we believe that's how it is, our biology will follow. So that's where it's worth us taking care for our outlook with things. That's the whole principle of looking to be optimistic, of looking to be hopeful, of drawing on placebo effects, if you like, of viewing things in a positive, optimistic or hopeful way. That will influence our biology. And that relates to the quantum physics principle of superposition. And that's where that, for example, Descartes quote, I think, therefore I am. To me, the I am potentially relates to that superposition idea in terms of once you think something's the case, it becomes a lot more concrete. And that could be in a literal sense as we're finding out. But it's very interesting hearing you talk about that because what strikes me from what you've said there is that we still have so much to learn about quantum physics. We're still in in so much the infancy of our knowledge, it seems, in that field. It was very much only 100 years ago that it was really first thought of. But the story that really comes to mind for me there is the story of Ignaz Semmelweis, who was a Hungarian doctor who basically in Hungary in the early 19th century, the mortality rate for women giving birth was very, very high. And so Ignaz Semmelweis decided to use a cleaning solution, some sort of antiseptic solution, before the doctors would help deliver the babies. And what they found in that situation was that the mortality rate of the women who were helped by the doctors who washed their hands reduced to 1%. But this was 1818. So no one could rationalise exactly why that was. They didn't have germ theory. Louis Pasteur hadn't come around yet. And so basically the rationalists of the time locked up Ignaz Semmelweis because they couldn't rationalise what he was doing. They were saying, no, you're you're mad. There is absolutely no way that can be true. You're off your rocker. He ended up having a nervous breakdown, I assume, partly because of the way that he was treated. Went into a mental asylum at the time and he actually died 14 days later after he was beaten, got a gangrenous wound and died 14 days later. So that's an example of someone who the rationalist thought completely dismissed completely thought that he was absolutely nuts actually imprisoned him for his beliefs but it was only some years later on when Louis Pasteur came around we discovered germ theory I believe Lister was another one who was involved in that and so it was of course after he died but 
Once we worked out the rational science, it actually backed up what he was saying in the first place. And I wonder if there's some similarity with quantum physics at the moment in terms of the more that we understand about quantum physics, the more that it's potentially going to explain some of these ideas which haven't necessarily fit into a more rational understanding so far. Yes, and one of the interesting things there is the quantum physicists, many of the founding fathers of quantum physics, turned to Eastern spiritual traditions to make sense of what they were finding. So they looked to the Vedic texts, for example, these Indian scriptures about how the world worked. And so there were notions there that say all matter is based in consciousness. Time and space are an illusion. Certainly notions like how we perceive things to be, that's how they are, that notion of some level of subjectivity in how we see things. But the close link between consciousness and matter that shows up in quantum physics is a reminder to us again, take care in how we think, how we perceive the world, because that can make a real difference to how we function, how we live and our health. And I think also your example shows the notion of watch out for being a bit over-rational. Over-rational thinking is a different form of control. It's like being a bit controlling. And I think sometimes where people might say they're being sceptical is not really being sceptical because true sceptics are open-minded. They'll weigh up the evidence. But I think sometimes people foreclose on the idea that, oh, no, something has to make perfect logical sense to me or if I can't rationally explain it, then it must be unacceptable. And I think people sometimes can experience fear at things that are hard to explain hard to rationalise, hard to make sense of. So it opens us up to this mystery in life. I think if we can go with that, if we're open to the mysteries in life, we're also open to the benefits that might even unexpectedly come from that. But if we are going to be narrow-minded and think, oh, no, this can't be true or that's not right or this washing hands thing, that can't make any sense, we're going to miss many opportunities for growth and advancement, I think. And it's very interesting, I think, in recent years, for example, how things like mindfulness and relaxation have drawn on some of these techniques. It seems from, for example, Eastern philosophy, some of the mindfulness techniques and meditation techniques are a lot more related in many ways to Eastern philosophy than they are Western philosophy. But one thing that I find interesting about that is the way that we almost do this watered-down version of it in the West, in terms of even stuff like meditation and yoga, compared to what they do, for example, in India, it's very, very watered-down. But from what we've spoken about before in the past, and to go back to that idea of quantum physics, whether it be shamans in the past or even some of the, the yogic practices, I believe, in India, they draw upon some of these ideas from quantum physics, don't they? Yes, and I'm really interested in what you described there too. I think that a lot of the way that, say, meditation or mindfulness is taught in the West is a bit reductionistic. So we'll look at the practice, which involves slow breathing and getting in a symmetrical position and reducing your thoughts. And yes, that's all well and good. I think if you miss out from the mystical dimension of it, which is often highlighted in the Eastern traditions, well, to me it's a bit like coffee without the caffeine. It's missing one of the most powerful ingredients. And I think the mystical element is very relevant. And one thing that interests me is if you look at all continents, the majority of people in all continents believe in paranormal phenomena. So either at least some form of 
telepathy or psychokinesis or synchronicity. Most people in most continents believe that. And most people in most continents would identify with some kind of religion or spiritual dimension in life. Sure, people might not be practicing by going to church regularly, but if you ask people in a census to identify a religion or say whether they relate to a particular religion, the majority of people will acknowledge a religion or some kind of spiritual belief. And then you've got 25 or 30% of people in the Western world who describe themselves as being spiritual but not religious. So why do we strip out that element that to so many people is meaningful and relevant, mind, body and soul? And I know that even in positive psychology it's looking to allow for more acknowledgement of spirituality, but even then it tends to be in a fairly safe way. There's a lot of emphasis on purpose and meaning. There's not so much emphasis on mysticism or even what I would comfortably call miracle energy in certain situations. Acknowledging that don't really understand that or know exactly what it means, but allowing for things that are beyond what we explain that have a mystical element to it but seem to have an influence if you look at the documentation of all sorts of stories or even some of the things we've described today. There does seem to be a mystical dimension in life. Well, it seems to me that the main time that we connect with that in our society is when people die. Is Often when people die, people will engage in more contemplative prayer. They might have some more mystical experiences regarding the person who's passed away. And so it seems to me that when that opportunity comes around, we do engage with it, but it's just not as present at other times. I think that's a good example. And I read something recently that the majority of people who've lost a close relative have some kind of sense of their presence after death. Now, it might be from hearing a voice or some sense of a physical presence, or it could even be, for some people, seeing a vision of that person. That at times they think is something coming from that person's spirit. Now, people aren't going to tend to talk about that kind of thing in polite company, I might say. But if you talk to people soon after they've lost a loved one, or sometimes at a funeral, you hear people making a number of references to that kind of experience, which is utterly accepted. And there's a level at which we might say, oh, yes, well, other people are humouring the person for their superstitious beliefs. But sometimes if you really notice the way that someone mentions something like that and the others respond, you get a sense, no, actually, a lot of people believe that there's some kind of connection there with someone's spirit, that there's some kind of consciousness or something about a person that continues beyond death, a soul, if you like. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Dad. And I think even just the term that we use, spirit, the fact that we don't talk about someone's memory as much as we talk about their spirit, to me, is significant. But one thing I wonder about now is we've spoken a little bit about some of the extraordinary benefits for physical health, but I wonder now whether you have any ideas on how to harness some of this potential for something that's not necessarily just physical health. One way is just allowing for people to have a belief in a spiritual dimension because what we know from previous research, for example, the Nezus have referred to this, Arthur and Christine Nezu. I saw them at a World Congress of Cognitive Behavioural Therapy in 2004 in Japan and they described how there is research that showed that if a therapist is seeing a client for any particular problem, it might be depression, it might be addiction, it might be some other problem, 
And if the therapist then asks the client, do you have spiritual beliefs that you'd like to discuss in therapy? If the person says yes, they would like to incorporate their spiritual beliefs in therapy, then the client tends to do better with their target problem, say depression or an addiction, even if the therapist is an atheist. So just for people to be able to acknowledge a spiritual dimension if it's there can make a difference. And there's a lot of work by Ken Pargament in the positive psychology field about people acknowledging sacred experience. And that might include people feeling that their relationship was meant to be or their work is a calling. That's one way that people might acknowledge something of a spiritual belief about aspects of their life or their life roles. But people can also have sacred experience including synchronicity, where they feel that some things that happened were meant to be or they felt that they were getting some kind of message or guidance from beyond themselves, whether they think of it as being God or the universe or something along those lines. So I find that even though I don't push it with clients, but if clients bring up some remarkable coincidences, or certainly if they specifically mention synchronicity to me, and a number do because they know of my interest in it, then sometimes we talk about their synchronistic experiences, and it's like there's another dimension in life that they relate to that's helped their healing in some way and actually maybe there's something we could put on the website page of a poster that I presented at a positive psychology conference a number of years ago with a couple of clients who had remarkable recoveries that were assisted by synchronicity and there certainly seemed to be something mystical happening in each occasion. Well, I wonder if you could just elaborate on that a little bit for us then. Do you have an example of how this way of thinking has helped someone more specifically? Well, look, I'll actually mention a different example to the two that are on the poster I mentioned. And this was a lady who I saw who was struggling at a particular time of life. She'd been in an abusive relationship and she was looking for some kind of direction in life. She wasn't sure what to do next. Well, anyway, she felt that she might get some kind of answer from her ancestors. That was the thought, I might get some guidance from my ancestors, which fits in in a way with the Jungian idea of the collective unconscious. This notion that maybe all this accumulated wisdom and experience from the past can somehow influence us now. So anyway, she had this sense... Now, she'd looked for something about her ancestors from the past and she couldn't find anything on the internet. She'd looked for hours. She's about to go to bed. Then when she's in the bathroom, she saw this image of a little old man in ancient clothing with hobnailed boots and a vest. And she had a sense that this was almost like representing ancestors. And the fellow said to her, what you're looking for, keep looking and you'll find it in the morning. Well, she thought this is very strange, but she'd seen this actual vision, like there was a person actually sitting there. Well, the next morning she got up, she looked up the internet, and she then found this remarkable information about some of her ancestors, some of her forebears that she didn't know about. She found out on the internet that there was a group of ancestors who were completely accomplished. Some of her relatives had excelled at learning and had a big impact on their culture at the time. And so she suddenly realised, wait a minute, even though I only went to year 10, maybe I've got the capacity to study myself. There were these people with this massive academic achievement before me. Maybe I can do that as well. Well, she did enrol in university. 
she had challenges in dealing with it, but she ended up doing so well that by the time she finished her undergraduate degree, she was invited to be a tutor in a particular area. Later on, she got a job in a profession and she had advancement, uncommon advancement, within about two or three years. Now, had it not been for that mystical vision, if you like, saying, you'll find what you're looking for in the morning, this affirmation that from her background, she had great strength and support from her background, not just some of the challenges from her childhood, her harsh childhood that she remembered, that gave her an uplifting, optimistic feeling that she could go ahead and study, and in some ways against the odds, she achieved massively. Now, there was so much of her advancement that turned a corner at the time she had that kind of experience. Unfortunately, she was a very intuitive person. She was open to feelings and messages that she might receive. And I think that made a huge difference because I think it's more when people are open-minded in some way and open to other influences coming in that they're more likely to have that experience. If people think there's no such thing as mystical or spiritual experience, they're not going to have an experience like that, I don't think. Well, it's just a fascinating example hearing you talk about that. And and it's interesting, even though you mentioned that, that she was someone who was quite open about things and thought openly, it's interesting the degree to which, you know, in these stories and we've spoken about it over the time, there seems to be a slight element of disbelief amongst the people who are experiencing that sort of thing. And the thing that really stands out to me about that is that we don't necessarily choose what resonates with us. In terms of even if we have a a rational viewpoint, we might go through experiences that do resonate with us in a particular way. And it seems to me that what you're suggesting is that we shouldn't ignore those experiences, even if we can't necessarily make rational sense from them. It's likely that if they do resonate with us in a way, that there is some personal significance to them. Yes, and I, I link, say, Jung with William James that way. So Jung talked about numinous experience. So numinous experience overlaps with, we could say, extraordinary experience, holy, sacred experience, something which might have a bit of an otherworldly quality, something that can make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. That will be a strongly numinous kind of experience. And I think being open to that can make a real difference. And then we're going to be more open to this mystical dimension or spiritual dimension in that sense that William James referred to as being ineffable and might be hard to explain in words, but might be noetic. We might come to have some kind of knowledge that seems to come from elsewhere, passive, like that client I mentioned to you. She had this feeling of knowledge. She was going to find some important information that would be motivating to her if she looked up her ancestors. And then she got this encouragement from outside herself, if you like, to keep on looking it up rather than giving up as she normally would have. So that's the numinous feeling and the mystical kind of experience that can lead us in a certain direction. And certainly many people feel that when they act on that kind of understanding, many good things can follow. Well, I know you've got a bit more of a personal story in this way too as well in terms of a numinous experience something that we've spoken about a little bit before, but do you want to give our listeners a bit of a sense of what that experience looked like for you? Okay, and now this is a complicated thing to describe, but it's maybe my most deep and mystical story, if you like, but it's one that certainly influenced my psychological practice for the 15 years since, and it relates, not surprisingly, I suppose, to synchronicity. 
and it relates to a sense of some kind of noetic knowledge. But where it started off, it was around the time when my mother died and I had quite a number of weeks to spend with my mother in hospital and I wanted to give my mother something or yeah, be able to give to her in some way to make it easier for her in some way towards the end of her life. Now this is going to sound really weird but there's something that I'd heard my mother say to me a number of times that I'd always resisted and ignored but I thought I'm going to play along with this because I think that she would like it if I play along with this. And I said to my mum, who I knew likely only had a few weeks to live, probably wouldn't be leaving the hospital, I said, look, mum, I know that you used to say that someone in our family will be famous. Now, mum, I think it's me. I was pretending. I was just making this up. But I'd heard her say something like that before. And she looked at me and she said, you've got it. Because she used to say that her grandmother used to tell her that story. So anyway... I thought, well, now I've got to follow up with some kind of plausible way of following it through. So I just made this up on the spot. I said, look, Mum, I've been thinking of different kind of theories about how the mind works. There's something I've thought of called positive psychiatry. It's a bit like positive psychology about being optimistic and that, but it's more to do with a biological aspect and a mystical aspect as well, that I think that we have ways of influencing our mind and brain our mind and body, that we've got receptors in our brain, that we can create certain kinds of neurotransmitters and open up these receptors in our brain or close them at will to change our brain chemistry. We've got a whole lot of plasticity in our brain chemistry. And um, so, yeah, look, I've been developing this theory and I think that's something that's going to, yeah, that's how I'll be famous. Again, of course, I'm just making all this up. It's just like stories. But my mother would be lying back in bed and she'd say, very interesting, very interesting. So I'd keep on embellishing these stories about how the neurotransmitters could work and receptors opening and closed. Well, anyway, through this time, I was becoming more speedy in my thinking, experiencing more numinous experiences, having massive synchronicity which was very fortuitous in a way I'll describe later on. But one of the things with this is I started to feel a bit more, but more appear hypermanic to other people. Now, in a way, I was deliberately inducing a hypermanic-like state because I won't go into it now, but there were many, many challenges at the time at work and elsewhere, and I felt that I needed to get more done in a certain time than I'd ever normally be able to. I'd need to work very hard, think quick, be creative, and also not need as much sleep. And I thought, okay, in the past, I know I've achieved a lot when I've been under a lot of pressure and I've entered a certain kind of state of mind. It looks a bit hypermanic, but it works for me, it's quick. And it helps me be effective. Okay, I'll let that run. But I'll only let it run if I keep on experiencing synchronicity. And I'll mention just one example of how this seemed to work for me. I got this harebrained idea that there was a way of solving a major problem we had in our work practice. We needed to get a builder to do renovations on our new building. And we'd tried for months and nothing was getting anywhere. So I suddenly had this idea of a builder that I could get in touch with. But it was a strange thing to do because that builder two years earlier had had quite a conflict with me and you'd normally think I wouldn't get in touch with that builder. Well, I thought, well, synchronicity tells me he's come into my mind in a certain way, I'll get in touch with him. Anyway, 
get in touch with the builder, ring him out of the blue. There was a pause for a second or two that I wasn't surprised when he answered the phone. But then he said to me, I'm glad you've rung me. I've been thinking of you the last couple of days. I've been thinking I'd like to build something for you. In a sense, problem solved. I I met with him and when we met, he said, look, I've wanted to build something for you. I'll build your building at cost. Problem solved. Now, there were half a dozen really major significant challenges I had at the time that seemed to be miraculously helped in some way. And I felt it was partly to do with the state of mind that I had at the time. But I've been talking about this kind of theory I had, and I was going to let all of that go after my mother passed away, which she did within a few weeks. But after this experience, a number of friends had been concerned. They thought that I might be psychotic at the time. But I thought, no, this was very effective. I knew that I'd managed a number of things well. And funnily enough, I'd started to believe these theories that I told my mother. So I thought, okay, a day or two after I felt I'd achieved all that I needed to, I thought I'm going to close down this process. So I didn't know at first how I was going to close it down, but I knew I was going to be able to. And I did it by looking into the sun. One morning, I saw the sunrise at dawn through curtains and I thought if I focus on the sun, if I focus on being grounded in my body, I'll become completely normal again. I won't be hypermanic at all. And that's what happened within a couple of hours. And within a couple of days, nobody thought I was hypermanic. But it's a strange thing. So I thought with this, I want to understand what's happened. I want to understand the science of it. I want to understand the spirituality of it. Partly for the science, it turned out that there was a conference on bipolar disorder an Australasian conference, and I thought, I'll go to that and I'll see what comes up from it. Had some remarkable synchronicity on a number of occasions at that conference, but one of the examples was there was this particular session when someone talked about the dangers of shamanism. He said he had a friend who burnt his retina because he'd heard from a shaman that if you want to reverse a manic condition, which he had, you should look into the sun. So he looked into the sun and burnt his retina. And I'm sitting in the audience thinking, no, no, don't look in the sun during the day. You'll burn your retina. Look at it at dawn, like I did, or in the evening. There's more to that kind of synchronicity. But I thought, wow, that's kind of like remarkable that what I'd, in a sense, noetically thought I should do, that I overlapped with this story of what shamans had done. But then after that, I went to Findhorn, a spiritual community. And there are a number of really remarkable things that happened at that time. And mainly it was going for a run where there were about six or seven remarkable bits of synchronicity that came up on this run. One is I started off and I saw a depression in a rock with a stream flowing over it and the water flowing into this depression and out of it, I thought... Oh, that reminds me like a neurotransmitter of of a neurotransmitter going in and out of a receptor and how much neurotransmitter you have available will make a difference to how you react. Strange kind of thought. Then I ran on and I thought, hey, look, there's a field where half of it has a crop growing at a certain level and half of it's more clear. Yes, crops get replaced and get renewed. I thought, well, every cell in our body changes at least once every six years. There's this renewal that goes on. Yes, our brains as well and receptors, very plastic. I ran on and I saw cows in a field. Some were on their feet and some were resting. 
I thought this will be a metaphor for receptors. Some receptors will be active, meaning open, or inactive, like resting or closed. I thought, oh, that's like what I did when I had this hypermanic-like state. What I was doing is I was having some kind of endogenous amphetamines that I was deliberately inducing so I could be more effective and think quick and act quickly and have more synchronicity. Again, a strange thought. Then I saw this particular sign. I later went back and took a photo of it because I thought it was quite numinous, but I didn't know how. It said, Apollo, your chariot awaits. It was like a winged chariot. I thought that was maybe symbolic of the speed of a chariot, so the speed of thinking like a winged chariot, quick thinking that goes with a hypermanic-like state. Then, remarkably, because I associate synchronicity with the number six and also the colour turquoise, I saw a huge turquoise six on the road, about four to six feet in length. Just remarkable that those two symbols combined together. A couple of other things, I was running back towards Findhorn and I saw a schoolhouse to my right. I don't normally run into school grounds, but there was a shaft of light that was falling on one window. I thought there's something significant about that window. I went into the school, I looked in the window and just where the shaft of light was falling, it fell on a figure, a soft toy of Tigger, Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. Now my nickname at that Findhorn two-week workshop I was at, was Tigger, because people felt I had Tigger energy. Actually, I was having some of that like endogenous amphetamine synchronicity energy, I felt, that I had around the time when my mum died. I thought, how remarkable. I feel the need to go and look in this window 50 metres away, intruding on school grounds, and there's this Tigger with a little roux on his shoulder. Then other things happened later on that were remarkable in terms of... uh, Uh, encountering a butterfly in a newspaper or whatever. But what happened is when I got back to Findhorn, I told someone else in our group, I said to her, look, I've had this amazing run and I had all these symbolic things happen that to me tell a story about neuroplasticity and about receptors being open and closed. Like there was this field that, you know, half of it was being replaced every six months or so. There was these cows that were standing or resting. It's like receptors being open or closed. Well, Later that evening, a couple of hours later, we had a workshop. This spiritual community, the convener of the workshop, the presenter, starts talking about how we change every cell in our body every seven years. Well, I'd thought six, but there she's saying seven. Then she said, for the first time I've ever heard anyone else talk about this, she said that our receptors can be active or inactive. I thought, this is just remarkable for someone at this to be talking like this. I I thought, this kind of thing must be true. Now, to go on from, from this, basically, I thought that my experience at the time was telling me that there are ways that we can speed up human evolution. We can speed up human evolution by having a greater understanding of our mind and body and have a greater understanding of how we can consciously influence our brain receptors. It was only two years ago when I started writing the second edition of my book on synchronicity, I learned that there are such things as endogenous amphetamines. And generally, endogenous amphetamine is called phenethylamine. Now, this was only discovered in the early 2000s, maybe about a year or two before I had this experience, but not written about much at all for many years after that. And so... 
Phenethylamine can also lead to an increase in the release of dopamine and serotonin. So even trace amounts of this transmitter can lead to a cascade of other neurotransmitters leveraging its impact. Now the thing that amazed me is there was me making up a story for my mother for a different reason, like trying to help her feel better at that particular time, after a little while, because of all the synchronicity at the time, thinking, hey, wait a minute, this might be true, and then later feeling that with the experience of being able to reverse it with the sun rising, then that experience on the Findhorn run and feeling that these different kind of inklings that I had were receiving this kind of affirmation and then learning that there are processes like phenethylamine, there are examples of where receptors can open or close that often people don't know about. Even a number of psychiatrists don't seem to to know that even now, it seems to me. But I think that the plasticity of our mind-body interactions is so much more remarkable than might think, and I've acted ever since as though these placebo effects have some kind of real physiology behind them. And there's even more to that story, but that's a very personal experience that led me to have no doubt whatsoever. There's truth in these kind of experiences that I'm very happy to act on that belief. Oh, it's a fascinating story that you've outlined there. And, and it's interesting how often something like that comes up in terms of people who make discoveries and they're prompted towards that discovery from something that, that in many ways makes no sense. I believe the person who discovered the Rosetta Stone was someone who basically turned up at this quarry and was literally looking for a needle in a haystack, so to speak, and and ended up finding the Rosetta Stone in a way that was just completely improbable in that sense. And I suppose it's a much more milder version of your story, but one thing that resonates about that to me is the idea that we've spoken about a little bit when we go travelling, is when you get to a new place, uh, essentially one of the things that I like to do is you just get lost And we've spoken about that idea of just following your nose and just seeing what you come across, seeing where you end up. And it's incredible how often you have these profound experiences that you've literally just come across by trying to get yourself lost in a a completely foreign environment. But one thing that I wonder there is having that experience and going through such remarkable synchronicity in that situation, did you then find that you were able to induce those experiences more after going through something like that? Was it then something that almost became a bit of a power that you could turn on and off? Or was it a little bit more voluntary in terms of not necessarily something that you could induce like that? I think that's a great question. And my personal experience is if ever I've tried to turn something like that on or make it happen or control it in any way, it doesn't happen. And I think many people describe that if you're making some conscious, effortful way of bringing about, for example, synchronicity or whatever, or forcing it, it ain't going to happen. That's sort of my experience. I think there's more that you're getting at in terms of allowing for also serendipity, allowing for unexpected discoveries, being open. Now, those things are more likely to happen in novel or different circumstances. It's more likely to happen if we're varying our usual routines, and that certainly includes travel, but you're getting at the notion of openness. I think it's more being open to what resonates with us, being open to what feels numinous, and then I think, like you're saying, follow your nose. So I often use those expressions, be open to being open, follow your nose, and then 
notice what you notice. I think the openness helps us respond to what might be there beyond ourselves or our conscious will. Then following our nose, it's like we're guided in some way that the psychiatrist Bernie Beitman refers to as human GPS when he's got remarkable stories about how someone might have been in danger and their relatives improbably found them by following their intuition, their human GPS. And then notice what you notice. I find sometimes something resonates. Now, I didn't know why, for example, Apollo stood out for me in that particular example I mentioned on the Findhorn Run. I only learned a couple of years ago in writing the book that Apollo doesn't just relate to the god of healing, So Apollo in the forecourt had the expression, know thyself, and Apollo was the father of Asclepius, the god of healing, meaning the more you know yourself, the more you can holistically heal. So awareness can lead to healing in some ways. But I also learnt that Apollo is related to what Plato talked about when he talked about divine madness compared to madness. He said that Apollo was the god of prophecy. So on that Findhorn run, feeling that I was seeing things that were prophetic about the nature of receptors and how they work, it turns out that Apollo is the god of prophecy and Plato all those years ago in Phaedrus, 1500 years ago or whatever, he was talking about the difference between divine madness or mystical experience, synchronicity if you like, and common madness or bipolar disorder or mania and so that to me then became something so significant in itself but even the way that came up that took 10 years before I learned about the significance of Apollo and the link with Plato and divine madness and madness so being open to things again as my mentor Ross says you file it away you file away that something resonated with you because it might not make sense at the time but often later on some meaning will come from that. So I really like the way that you're describing this openness to serendipity, being open to respond to that, allow for that, and follow your nose. And then if we feel some kind of numinous experience, if we allow ourselves to be intuitive and then be guided by that and maybe explore acting on some kind of awareness that seems to come from that, well, in my life experience, there's nothing more powerful or helpful in advancing creative ideas or sometimes even solving intractable or wicked problems. And that's why I wrote about that in my book, The Positive Psychology of Synchronicity, because that is my deepest story, if you like, of mystical experience and how it relates to helpful outcomes and mind-body healing. Oh, well, it is so fascinating to look at all of this sort of stuff, Dad. And Look, if there's any final thoughts from me about all this, it's been very interesting to look at some of this sort of stuff now because I must admit on my podcast, it's come up recently with a number of successful people throughout history, whether it be people like Muhammad Ali, Leonardo da Vinci, the Beatles. One of the things that struck me about these people who achieved so much success is that they all employed some level of unconventional thinking. And I heard a quote from Jim Rohn the other day, the American entrepreneur and author, and he said, standard education gets standard results. And to me, I wonder if we can almost extend it to when looking at some of this sort of stuff, that standard thinking gets standard results. 
And there's definitely a place for standard thinking. That's not to say that anything goes in that sort of sense. But at the same time, it seems to me from looking at some of the most successful people, some of the people who really do stand out throughout history, all of them did have some level of unconvention about them. They were able to call on some perspective outside of just the rational framework that allowed them to achieve all that they did achieve in the end. So if there's anything that I take from all of that, it's to be open to experience outside of the purely rational conceptualization of things. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean ignoring the conventional or the rigorous. William James was very rigorous in his ways of looking at things. Carl Jung looked at things from an experimental approach. Certainly a number of other people I've mentioned. There's also Bruce Lipton, the biologist. There's Rupert Sheldrake, the biologist. They're people who are very accomplished conventionally in their fields who talk about the kind of transpersonal experience that we've been describing today. So I think it's really good to have rigour. It's really good to use logic and to recognise that more than half the world believes that there are some kind of extraordinary experiences in life. There are things that can't just be conventionally explained, but that doesn't mean we have to turn our back on those things, especially when they're so widely documented by human experience. So the notion is this transpersonal or soul dimension, I believe it's part of everybody's life. People might pay attention to it or they might not pay attention to it, just like mind and body. So much of physical health care doesn't pay much attention to mind at all. It's so much about body and I think something's lost. I think even in physical health, pay attention to mind, pay attention to soul. Then a more holistic way of looking at things, I think we get better results. And we mentioned a couple of the resources that we'll put up for today at www.psychspiels.com.au. And Dad, we've got a bit of new artwork for the podcast. So for those who are head along to the podcast page for today, uh, you will see a bit of a revamp. We've done a bit of work on the podcast page. So hopefully you enjoy the new artwork and it can uh, propel us into the next stage of the podcast, Dad, which I'm very much looking forward to getting into. And I'm really glad that that comes along. I think it's episode number 40. I reckon that's a fitting time for us to have a new logo. And you've done really well organising that artwork. So I'd love to hear some feedback from people, what they think of it or what it maybe what they associate with it. Absolutely. And we do have the email address at podcast at chrismackey.com.au. So both Dad and I are accessible on that one. And yeah, thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. I look forward to the next one. Thanks heaps, Rowan. I've really enjoyed it.